Hi everyone, Tig here. Bit of a disclaimer, you're about to listen to my interview with the legendary Todd McIntosh. You may notice in the opening there's a little noise in the background. There was some drilling going on and we had to push on with the interview because time was scarce. So I'm very sorry for the interruption, but I assure you it only lasts the first five or so minutes. After that, smooth sailing and quiet. Please enjoy and from Everyone here at the Nevers Podcast, we're very sorry for the inconvenience. This is a Culture Inject production. Oh, you lucky people. Do we have a treat for you. Today I'm joined by a very special guest. You may know him from his work on seasons 1-6 to six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the 2005 masterpiece Memoirs of a Geisha, or the TV series Pushing Daisies, Torchwood, and most recently Legion, where he served as the makeup department head. But we know him as our amazing first guest. Sisters, brothers and others, put your hands together for Todd McIntosh. I just want to say thank you so much for being here. It's a great honor to have you on the podcast. How are you feeling today? Great, great. I mean, after all of this time, it's a great honor to be remembered and being asked to be on this podcast. <laughs> well, I think we've always said one of the things about Joss's work is that it is, it is timeless. It, it will be as relevant now as it was when it was first released. And one of the reasons that is true is because his use of practical effects and makeup makes his work timeless. And that means your work as well is truly timeless. So I wouldn't be surprised if you are getting calls from people for many years to come. Well, thank you so much. I do want to say up front that you all have to know it's a combined effort for doing prosthetics like that. The um, prosthetic house, John Bullich's optic nerve, constructed the prosthetics i applied them and put them on so we were a team indeed it takes many people to make a great tv show yes you're so you're a two times emmy winner once for buffy and once for pushing daisies yes i have two wins and 14 nominations let's say it's a great honor just to be nominated but you've you've won twice which is incredible when you consider that you're entirely self-taught if i if i'm not incorrect no that's true that's amazing how did you kind of first learn the skill and where did you sort of did you watch i don't imagine you didn't watch youtube videos was there did you read from a book <laughs> when i was about six years old there was a tv show called dark shadows it was a soap opera on in the day and my stepmother used to watch it so I ended up watching it, and it had all kinds of vampires and werewolves and witches, etc. And I started to want to transform myself into those. So I was using whatever makeup pieces I could find and painting myself. Then when I was about uh, 10, I would say 11, a next-door neighbor happened to work in amateur theater, saw what I was doing, and gave me a book. So that's really where it started. A couple of books and sitting down and doing the exercises in the books. Speaking of young upcoming makeup artists, would you say it's better to have a formal education or would you prefer people follow your path of just kind of experimenting and doing what they love and learning through being in the job? I think actually the answer to that has changed radically over the years. 
when I was coming into the business, the studio system had just been abolished. And all of those people were thoroughly trained, but by the studio bosses. They had three years paid apprenticeship to learn their craft. We learned, my generation, from them, sort of watching, seeing their work, and if we got lucky enough, meeting them and working with them. But I don't know that that system holds together anymore today. We are in a completely different era, different avenues of approach to the career, and I think that a school is probably the best place to start now. So you say you, you first kind of cracked into the business doing makeup for amateur dramatics. What was your first paid television role, kind of the first on-screen makeup work you did? Well, when I was about 17, I was trying to put together a portfolio to prove to myself and others that I could actually do this as a career. And I asked a TV studio in Vancouver, Canada, if I could borrow a wig. And they said, we have a job opening. Would you like to come and show us your stuff? So I went and I did do a little bit of makeup. But what shocked me was that they wanted beauty. And I really didn't have a lot of training in beauty, although I knew the basics. And I actually got the job. And from that point on, I became a beauty makeup artist rather than a prosthetics makeup artist. Ah, it's quite a rooty took. So would you say you were more, in, I know you started off in the monsters, but would you say that you were more inclined in the beauty or the monster work now that you've kind of had a career in the industry? You know, the one thing that I really prefer is not to divide the two types of makeup. They are really the same set of techniques. You paint. You have to understand how to paint and draw, and you have to understand a little bit of technical. But between the two, they support each other. The more beauty makeup you do, the more you understand how to age the skin because you're correcting it all the time. The more monster and prosthetic stuff you do, the more you understand what doesn't look beautiful and how to apply the opposite to a beauty makeup. They're similar and supportive skills. One of the things about Buffy that I loved so much was the fact that I had a beauty station and a prosthetic station and I would flip back and forth between them during the day doing all kinds of makeup which is a little unusual because, as you note, most makeup artists separate the two or they specialize. And some shows, or most shows nowadays, have a beauty trailer as well as a prosthetics trailer, and the two don't mix. I like to jump back and forth. You mentioned Buffy, and it's, it's kind of hard to avoid it. It's such an iconic show, and people have done so well off it. Are you kind of happy with that being the first thing that people think of when they think of you? Or are there other roles and creations you've made that you think deserve more of a spotlight? You know, it's it's an awkward question because we as as freelance employees are not really in control of what jobs we get. So sure, there were things that I expected my career to do that it didn't end up doing. But if I have to look back and say, okay, what was the best or brightest thing of my career? To have both Pushing Daisies and uh, Buffy is an honourable thing, and I'm thrilled that they are part of my legacy. Very, very good answer. I know uh, Pushing Daisies still to this day has a huge, huge fan following, and a lot of people really wish it had been given more of a chance to shine, myself included. It was, it was a very special show, and I, I can't imagine being part of that crew. It must have been a great set to work on. You know, it was truly delightful. If I could have done that for the rest of my career, I would have sucked with that show. You know, I loved every aspect of it. 
And it's interesting that we're talking about the differences between the beauty and the prosthetics. For example, the first Emmy for Buffy was a, based on prosthetics. That's what it was won for. Whereas the Emmy I won for Pushing Daisies was for beauty. So even those two things have balanced what I do. But on a show like Buffy, we had John Vulich making the prosthetics and delivering them to me. On a show like Pushing Daisies, I designed all of those prosthetics. And it was, I think, the first and only show in my career where I've actually had the designer credit as well as the application credit. Would you like to be more on the design part of things? Because um, we have a question now from Berger, one of our followers and fan of the podcast. Uh, he says, how much creative freedom did you have in your various designs? For example, if you'd wanted the gentleman to look like John Waters, could you do that? Or would it have come from Joss? Did Joss have the final say on all your work? Or were you allowed to freeform a bit with the makeup and designs? <laughs> it's going to be a yin-yang again. There's a little bit of both. Everything comes from the writer, obviously from the writers and producers. So Joss would say what he wanted in the script. That would go to John Vulich at Optic Nerve, and he would have his people draw up various designs for what that would actually look like once sculpted and applied to a person. And then I would be involved in that. We'd back and forth different ideas, talk about lenses, talk about teeth. John would tell me what to expect with the piece. And then it was being built while we're filming other things. The day that it worked, it would arrive on my doorstep at three in the morning. I'd pick it up, drive to work, look at it for the first time the morning I'm going to put it on. Oh, wow. It would be more or less up to me how it was painted based on what discussions I'd had with Joss. So there's a bit of freedom, but there's definitely bracketing. I tell students in makeup schools when I'm teaching that that is the time where they can do anything that they want to do. It's when you get out in the field, you have to learn to interpret within the borders that you're given. That links in quite well with our next question, which is, can you recall your most challenging project project to date in terms of the makeup you had to apply? You say that these masks would appear on your doorstep at 3am and you then have to, like the first time you saw them was when you were putting them on. Were there any times you opened the box and thought, what am I dealing with here? <laughs> well, yes, yes, of course. Um, you have to understand that television works very fast and they may cast an actor on Friday and he works Monday. So many times uh, John Bullich's lab was constructing their basic sculpture on a generic form and at the last minute transferring that over to the actor's life mask when they got him or sometimes even just putting it on generically. So in that process of the rapid delivery and creation of prosthetics, which is every show, by the way, from Star Trek through to Legion, wherever it is, mm. they're all pushing the time limits. Uh, sometimes those pieces don't fit or there are little uh, structural things that a makeup test would have changed, but we don't have time for a test, so you have to deal with it at the moment. I'm trying to think of a few while I'm talking. I know there was a specific couple of demons that had horns, and they came with a fiberglass underpiece with uh, mounting for the horns. And we got that all together, but the hair department had no way to adhere the wigs they had gotten. So we had to take it all apart and string wires back and forth around the head so that they had something they could pin the wig to <laughs> that would stay during the stunts. That kind of creative thinking, 
I think is one of the most important things that a department head has to have. It's not just you sit there and put the makeup on, you problem solve. And especially in TV, that's a huge skill. And really, experience is the only thing that gives you that skill. There was another character on the show, the, the Frankenstein character. I'm sorry, Adam, I think. I yes. can't remember all of those details. My memory's a little faded. A lot of that particular makeup was very fastly prepared. And I remember between scripts, suddenly the back of his head had to open up. And they, they rigged something. But when we got it, there was no instruction on how to mount it to his hair. So we actually had to sew in lace pieces into his hair and then put Velcro on them and Velcro on the other side. And the whole thing was just hanging off his hair. That is quite a story. Because I've got to say, I, I recently rewatched all of Buffy. And even now, even back when I was sort of first watching it, sort of 15, 16, and even now, the Adam set was one of the more impressive pieces in the show. And I remember thinking, like, I don't, un- I don't understand how a group of people can make this guy look like that without requiring so much CG. Like, to do it all practically, it's, it's an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, well, I have to give it to um, Optic Nerve. I mean, they were top of the line, wonderful, wonderful uh, people. And watching them create these characters was a thrill. But then putting them on could also be a bit of a challenge. Like the the Adam character, that entire body had to be put on, zipped up. And then everywhere where there were joins, we had to put blenders and try and blend the paint job into the body. So the first time we did him, it took eight hours. When we finally got it down, it took six hours. So it's it, And he had to stand for at least a good half of that. It was one of the technically more um, annoying, not terribly difficult. The work wasn't that hard. It was just long, um, tedious work for both the actor and for us. Is a typical day on the set of a TV series wildly different to that of a film set? And is there actually such a thing as a typical day on set for a makeup artist? Good question. Um, I would say that initially when television first started to be something and it was building up and people were accepting TV sets into their homes, there was a radical difference between filmmaking and TV making. You had to have different products that worked with the video cameras and the lighting that was required. So there was a divide between TV makeup artists and film makeup artists. And there was a bit of a um, rivalry between the two. As we have moved into a realm where everything is digital, film is digital, TV is digital, the lighting has completely changed. So all the products are basically the same for both. That divide has gone away. What you get when you do a film is a script in advance and a prep time that allows you to build everything. What you don't have in TV is much advance notice. You get a script while you're shooting one and you're prepping the other and you have maybe seven days to ten days to come up with all the things that are needed. Uh, so the, the time is tighter, but the skill difference between the two mediums now for a makeup artist is virtually the same. Uh, there was a time when we were calling Buffy, uh, Buffy the Weekend Slayer, because <laughs> we were doing so long hours. 
And because at that time the union gave us a, a longer turnaround from Friday night to Monday morning, they would work us all the way into sunrise Saturday. So your Saturday was gone. Yeesh. Yeah, it, it, those were fun but tough days. I mean, my average day on that show was about 14 hours. Nowadays, 14 is a, a yeah, it could still be the same. I would say 14 is an average makeup artist day. They try to limit the crew to about 12 hours. And if you're there an hour to two hours in advance to get everybody ready for the first shot, then you end up being 14. Long name. It's got to be quite satisfying seeing your work kind of on screen once it's once it's all said and done you're like i did that that's that was impressive if you are the kind of artist that can allow yourself that <laughs> yes i i think that most of the people i know and certainly myself i'm always first looking at the thing that didn't go right and that's the thing that bothers me all day <laughs> and other people may look at it and say oh that's great but i know where the flaws are so that's the, that's the curse of all great artists and artisans. You, you can see the amazing masterpiece, but you'll always see the crack on the foot. That's, that's a shame. <laughs> so from season two onwards, you were the makeup department head for Buffy. I suspect a lot of our listeners won't actually know what sort of duties that entails. Would you mind explaining roughly what a, a makeup department head does and how that differs from a traditional makeup artist? Well, first of all, I have to sort of correct that. That was a contract negotiation ploy. I was always makeup department head. Oh, really? I was from the um, presentation working under Tom and Barry Berman, who did the first prosthetics department, and they were the ones who suggested me to be department head for the presentation. And then after that, I was um, department head all the way through until I left. What that means... Uh, a regular makeup artist on a show, say you just day check, you're calling in for one day or two days or you're going to work a week, or maybe you're the third on the show, third makeup artist in the trailer. You're just responsible for your actors, those characters, getting them looking right, getting them on set, on time, and then maintaining that makeup all day long. The department head is responsible for all the other stuff. They're the one who interacts with the ADs, makes the scheduling, decides who to hire on what day, looks at the work of that day, decides how long a person needs to stay. Sometimes we let people go early. Sometimes they have to be on set all day long. Those are the decisions the department head is making. Uh, the par department head interfaces with the producers, the writers, directors, all of that. The general makeup artist doesn't have to deal with those conversations uh troubleshoots all of the things that are going on so i'm responsible for the people under me as well as for what i'm supposed to produce for the show uh and of course money <laughs> we do the budgets and the the spending and shopping lists and making sure the actors have the things that they need and then with shows like this of course there's also the the possibility of either designing an effect and testing it and doing um, on-set tests, as well as publicity stuff for the actors. And uh, let's see, I guess interfacing with the um, de departments that work with us. For example, hair and makeup are two separate jobs in America, although I understand that in um, the UK, the two jobs are one. So a person may be expected to do both skills, which I think is a shame because they are not... Um, 
easily shared skills, but that's just my own opinion. Uh, and then the wardrobe department, because, of course, what they put on has a major effect on what we do. And the lighting, the director of photography, has a major effect on whether the makeup is successful or not. And the camera people, <laughs> all of those uh, other crafts, props even. It's quite a difference between the two roles. It's, it's a lot of work. Absolutely. And there are many makeup artists who are not good at those skills. I mean, if art is your primary skill, uh, that kind of other brain thinking doesn't seem to come naturally. For some of us, it's, it's a little bit easier, but um, it, it is always a struggle. It's always difficult to do both your art and, and the paperwork. The business side of show business. Um, many people consider the pilots for Buffy to be one of the finest pilots ever made. Was there that feeling on set when you were working on those those early episodes that you, you were really on to something special? Or were you all still a little unsure? Are you talking about the presentation or the first episode of the first season? Uh, the, the first episode of the first season. I know there was an unaired pilot, but uh, Welcome to the Hellmouth is the one. Actually, let me address the unaired pilot because it was kind of thrown together. And I remember um, we didn't really know what we were coming to do. We knew it was a vampire thing and we'd all seen the, the movie that came uh, ahead of that. But one thing that was really interesting is that a lot of the crew members who, you know, they were just doing a presentation for a week's work in between waiting for other jobs. They weren't there for any other reason. Uh, and they often made comments that they didn't understand the script, that it was unfilmable, that it would never be watched, that no one would ever make this thing. Now, myself being a vampire fanatic and Dark Shadows having been hmm. part of my history, I thought Buffy was the closest thing I would ever have an opportunity to be a part of that was like Dark Shadows. So I remember going to Joss directly and saying, listen, if this goes, I want to be your guy. Wow. And sure enough, none of those other people were on the show once uh, <laughs> once we started. And wow. I was indeed the uh, the makeup department head from that point on. Uh, as far as the show, you have to understand seasons sometimes at that point. There were um, beginning of the season, 22 episode shows. And then there were shows that started their season and failed. And they would have a mid-season replacement. Buffy was intended to be a mid-season replacement. So what we were filming, the entire first, well, I don't know whether it was nine or 12 episodes, we didn't know what we had. It could be a total flop. It could be something very exciting. To me, it was exciting, and I couldn't wait to get each script. I couldn't wait for the next installment and to read it and be part of creating it. So I was really hyped up for it. And when we finally aired, it was such a relief that it was successful and we could continue making it. Speaking for all the fanatical fans around the world, I'm very glad it, it was as successful as it was because it is, to this day, one of my favourite ever TV shows. Yes, I, and I loved being a part of it. At that time, there was a whole bunch of new technology happening. For example, the first fan sites on the computer were um, happening. And I just couldn't believe that all of a sudden I was able to go on a computer, log in with a special code, and actually talk to fans. This is something that if I had had the opportunity to do when I, I saw Dark Shadows as a child, would have changed my life. 
it was a very exciting time. And working on the show and interacting with the fans has always been a, a great part of my life. I think it, Buffy did kind of get in just on that crest where the internet was starting to take off and there was a huge swell from fans on kind of message boards and everything. It, it definitely was the right show at the right time. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of the fans, a, a fan favourite character and one of the best arcs in the Whedonverse was Willow from kind of Mousy Geek to Queen of the Wicker. She had quite a journey, particularly Dark Willow from season six, driven mad by grief at the loss of her true love, Tara. She sort of, she goes a bit Sith on everyone. Now, during that journey, her appearance changes quite drastically. It looks like it was quite a simple sort of change to make, but it also looks like the kind of change that looks simple, but was actually quite complex. Were there any particular challenges with kind of the white veiny look and the, the dark eyes? Or was it a relatively simple transformation? You know, during the, the long span, we were talking uh, six years, uh, there were a lot of changes in any crew and in any show. So what happened in the beginning was that I was doing Sarah's makeup and my second on the show was doing uh, Allison's makeup. And then at one point... The monsters grew to be so all-consuming because it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger that Sarah felt that she needed someone who was just there for her and didn't have any other um, distractions. So we got a makeup artist for her, which meant Allison moved into my chair. So for a couple of seasons, I did Allison's makeup. And then at that point, we made yet another change. I don't remember why. And uh, one of my other makeup artists took over her character. So I'm not sure exactly what you're seeing or reading. You may be seeing just a transition from one artist to another artist in her looks in those years. Then, of course, once she becomes the the Wicked Willow and (laughs) all the veins had to go on and stuff, I believe that was done by a makeup artist named Carol Schwartz, who was my third at that point. And she took over Allison's character. And really, it was a relatively simple thing. Uh, personally, I thought the veins looked a little like lightning bolts. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, leave those things to my people. I hire people I trust. I trust their skills. And I don't ever interfere on the relationship they are making with their actor, especially when there's a makeup like that, a character makeup that carries on. It's really more about the actor's comfort than my comfort and so that's probably the development of that makeup there speaking of the world of kind of classic cinema are there any iconic looks from film or television that you wish you could have had a hand in kind of creating and applying things like uh, freddy krueger's pizza face from nightmare on elm street uh 1986's horror masterpiece the fly uh, the Elephant Man, or any of these, were there any of those roles that you really wish you could have had a hand in applying? As an artist, and in this particular field, I would have to say all of them. <laughs> but there's, there's no, um, no new and innovative and interesting monster character that gets thrown at us uh, in the entertainment world that we don't get excited by. Uh, personally, uh, I love, and I was raised with all of the older movies, so those original monsters are ingrained in my head. I just saw a picture of uh, Elsa Lanchester as the Bride of Frankenstein again. 
And really what a brilliant design that is. Mm. It had nothing else to draw on than what that artist was dealing with. Now we can see a thousand variations of the Bride of Frankenstein style with the hair and the lightning bolt of the hair. But at that time, it was really new and innovative. And I really appreciate that. I also know they didn't have the products that we have today. Um, of course, during the uh, time that I was doing Buffy, Rick Baker was doing Planet of the Apes, the remake, and I desperately wanted to be a part of that crew, but I was already employed, so I, I missed that one. I also missed the uh, Grinch movie, which I would have loved to have been part of. But ultimately, I'm, I'm very, very happy with what we did and the makeups that I churned out. You have some creative, some truly iconic looks, so I think you're definitely win, winning that one. Uh, when it comes to kind of doing touch-ups on set and anything, once they're out your door and you have to fix them on location, do you have like a, a go-to product for on-set touch-ups, or is it just a question of grabbing what's needed and getting on with the job? Well, the, what happens on the set, um, obviously you can't carry everything that's in your station, but I try and make a kit as light as I can with a little bit of everything that I might need. There are certain products that might be a perfect repair for almost anything. So you shove those in your bag and make sure that you've got that. You know, adhesives that are kind of instant uh, rather than ones you have to blow dry and take a little bit longer with. Um, quick stuff like uh, there's a two-part silicone makeup called Third Degree that sort of uh, starts as a gel and sets up. You can make quick bullet wounds with that or you can fill in an, an edge or a tear or something. But now that I'm thinking about it and giving you that answer, those products didn't exist when I was doing Buffy. They're all new. So at the time of Buffy, we didn't even have the alcohol-soluble pigment palettes that we have now. So you'll notice that in one of the very early episodes, there's a fight where Darla is involved and she's white up to her neck, but her neck is pink and her hands are pink. And as a matter of fact, someone told me we lost the Emmy that first ep that first season because of that makeup. But we were in a tin shelter <laughs> that they were calling a studio in the summer in L.A. The temperatures were over 100 and she had makeup on that just kept melting off. I couldn't keep it on her. So nowadays we have alcohol-soluble pigments and pigments that are made with adhesives in them that would stay on during a nuclear attack. <laughs> so at that point, you know, what's in your kit, what you take to the set and the techniques you use have changed over the years. Seems a little, seems a little unfair to take the image for that one thing. But I mean, speaking as someone who's watched that episode a million times, I've honestly never noticed. <laughs> you didn't, but the board of makeup artists that are on the panel did. I suppose that's their job. <laughs> that's their job to look for, and mine too. You know, and, and technically, I should have perhaps been on it for that shot and, and missed it, or wasn't watching. You know, you never know; things do slip by. Indeed. Let's let's lighten up a little. What, what would you say so, has been your proudest moment so far as a makeup artist? Proudest moment. Gee, again, that's that's. A very difficult thing to to say. Um, I had a moment with Joss that I always remember and I'm always Im immensely grateful for. It was very late at night. I would say it was probably two or three in the morning. And everybody was on set. 
I was in the trailer working and I was walking from the trailer to the production office and Joss was walking towards me from the production office to the set. And just after we had passed each other, he turned around and called to me and said, Todd, I just want you to know you're the only department I never have to worry about. That little moment made me so happy and so proud and just is the epitome of what I want a makeup department to be. It is something that functions, functions well, and nobody has to hear about us. Nobody has to watchdog us. It just gets done. I can't really, I mean, I could say standing there getting the Emmy was a proud moment, and it was. And watching a makeup that you've done on set go on camera and look exactly right, that's a proud moment. But as a person, that interaction with Joss was one of my proudest moments. You were the makeup department head for the last two seasons of Legion. How closely did you work with Howard Berger, the special effects makeup supervisor? And what were the challenges like presented on that show as comparison to the other shows you worked on? Was it, It's quite a surreal show. Did that present any new challenges or was the makeup still kind of the same as on any of the show? It definitely had its challenges for sure. <laughs> First of all, I want to talk about Howard. Howard Berger and I had really never met. Uh, all these years I've been working in this city, we knew each other, knew of each other, but we hadn't really met. And then one day I got a call because he was doing the Orville and he asked if I was available. So I came onto the show and was doing Creatures and met him for the first time and really liked the man personally, as well as his aesthetic and his um, true love of the industry and makeup artists in general. He got a call to do Legion and told them, Todd McIntosh is the guy you want. I got the job because of Howard. We worked together beautifully. We respect each other. And it was just a joy. I have no problem with Howard whatsoever. And I have continued to work with him ever since. We did Space Jam. Uh, I was just one of the background people. I wasn't a regular person on the show, but he employed me regularly. And then back to Orville and then on to Them Covenant, which is just wrapped up. It's been a wonderful working situation. As far as the makeup on Legion, yeah, the, the challenges were that the hyper-technical camera and lighting of the show didn't really communicate terribly well with me. So I, it was always a walk on set and suddenly realize, oh, they're doing that. I didn't realize that's what it was going to be, and then doing last-minute adjustments, as it were. Um, the only episode on Legion 2 that really was a major one for me was the parallel universes one where he was different ages and different looks and had to cross himself in all of these looks and interact with himself. And that, that was a, a technical challenge, for sure. I can imagine. I've got to say, speaking personally as a, a viewer, Legion aesthetically was one of the best shows I've ever seen. And actually that episode you just mentioned with the alternate reality versions of him was my favourite episode by far in that series. So, like, thank you so much for making that work because it looked phenomenal. Yeah, and that also had its... It had real challenges, especially in the lighting, again, and the camera work where we would walk on set and 
they've got a green light over his head showing up the really huge sculpture under the bags under the eyes and they're saying can you take those down no it's part of the sculpture (laughs) i can Mm. cut it off but and so they would correct it if they needed to with um video uh computer stuff but it was it was a real challenge to know again not just a straight makeup in all those different lighting and camera setups but a prosthetic makeup which reacts differently it's safe to say you are an inspiration to many makeup artists working today. Who are some of the artists that have inspired you? And who are some artists working today that you're impressed by? That's such a broad question. Uh, but, Sorry. you know, when I started watching Dark Shadows, the makeup artist for that little soap opera in New York was a, a man named Vincent Lascalzo. And, you know, he did the best he could, but they suddenly had to age the vampire to 200 years old. So when watching that show, there was suddenly this makeup that was shockingly beautiful. It was sculptural and realistic and just blew my imagination. That was done by a local New York makeup artist named Dick Smith, whose name anyone in makeup probably knows because he sort of became the granddaddy of all effects makeup artists. His work, where it showed up, was radically different than anyone else's and i i really became a fan of his and it was following his work that helped me become who i am i took a course from him and and all the rest of that other makeup artists that i met inspired me along the way i worked with ken chase who did dr zaius and planet of the apes and he taught me a great deal about beauty makeup i worked with mike westmore who not only got me in the union in two different countries, he trained me in what he learned from the studio system and was a mentor to me. Then I could not have made it without Mike Westmore at all. And so I call those people heroes. Today, we have people whose technical ability is so far beyond what I learned and what I could do that I look at them in awe like Kazuhiro, who was a Rick Baker protege. His work is so astoundingly realistic and so beautifully perfect on camera that I just don't think you could top it. But, you know, there'll be a generation coming up next that will top it. There's many artists like that today. And what's shocking also is they're from all around the world. When I started in the business, I moved from Canada to L.A. because L.A., Hollywood, was the center of the film industry. And now it's everywhere. And the people who do this specialized work are coming from everywhere. I think that's that's definitely a huge benefit because it'll allow other people to bring in fresh new ideas, new looks that people from sort of in the others wouldn't have been able to think of because they're seeing it from a completely new perspective. It's It's always a good thing to bring new blood into an industry. And the amazing artists that are working in the UK, Neil Gordon and so many others whose names I, I can't remember at the moment, their, their work is spectacular. Their creative ability is just pushing the boundaries. And that's always inspiring. You mentioned uh, Vincent Descalzo and Dick Smith earlier. Is there anyone else in the industry that you would really like to work with, like from, from now, currently working or from any time in the past, that you would really like to sort of be able to team up with? Uh, such a, again, an interesting question. I, I met Dick Smith. I took the course from him, but I never worked with him. 
perhaps working with him and seeing how he worked would have been a truly fascinating uh, experience. Um, the, the, the raw ambition to work with this person and work with that person and build a reputation and build and build and build sort of levels out at the end of your career. And I'm, I'm really happy working with people like Howard Berger, who I respect enormously and is also a great artist, but his, his demeanor on set is not about huge ambition to do the next and the biggest. It's about having a really great time and be really proud of what you're doing in the moment. And I think that informs my career at this point more than searching for heroes that I want to work with. It's a great way to look at things. Speaking of your very impressive body of work, are there any shows or series or films that you think our listeners will be surprised to hear you had a hand in at one point? Well, like all of us, as I said before, we can't control what jobs we get. So the rent needs to be paid, and whatever job mm. comes along, you do. So there's a lot of makeup artists out there who are working, and their names don't necessarily appear on the credits, but they work all the time. Um, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, I've worked on Jane the Virgin for about three seasons. My name isn't on the credit, but I was there regularly. You know, many other shows like that that I had a hand in, Orville, again, two seasons I worked on that, but I, I don't have a credit in it. Even uh, Star Trek Enterprise I worked on, and it was really enjoyable, but I don't necessarily have a credit for that either. So those are not necessarily on my resume. Uh, there's an interesting story. It's a little sad in its own way about uh, Jack Pierce, who was the makeup department head at Universal and created all of the Universal monsters from Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein, the mummy, the wolfman. He's the guy who created all of those initial designs. But his last show was Mr. Ed. So you, you never know where people are going to go and what they're going to end up doing. Make the most of every job that comes your way, I guess. That's right. And find the enjoyment in it. Indeed. I did a kid's show recently. Not so much a kid's show. It was a comedy, but it had a lot of kids in it. It took place in the 1970s, and it was just a bunch of kids and a mom and a dad. But again, that's not something that you would expect of the Todd McIntosh who did Buffy. Now, it's kind of hard to avoid this topic. It's everywhere. It's in the, the forefront of human consciousness right now. As the world is grinding to a juddering halt thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic... Most, if not all, film and TV shows currently in production have shut down in an attempt to combat the seemingly unchecked spread of this disease. Has this impacted you personally? Are there any jobs that you were working on that have been either shut down or postponed until things clear up? Absolutely. Everything. My income went from living paycheck to paycheck and doing okay to zero. I have no income and I have no prospects of income as of right now. The film industry is almost entirely freelance at this time, which means that all of us who just go from job to job or even those of us who are on a regular show, once the show shuts down or the season is done, we're simply unemployed. We have no protections. Of course, we do have the union, and the union is working very, very hard to make sure its members are covered for their medical and whatever uh, 
things that they can do, they are doing. But out of all of the people out there, we don't have any sick leave. We don't have any prospects. And our entire job has to do with being in close contact with other people. So uh, I'm not sure when, under what conditions, the film industry will start up again. And that's very, very scary. Uh, I know Beijing, uh, just before they shut down, their hair and makeup people had to wear masks and gloves. And I can see that certainly for the first part of starting up again, if and when it does, will probably be part of our job. I think that's that's probably quite possible. I mean, this almost seems like a silly question, but do you think there's going to be a long-lasting effect on the film and television industries because of this? Do you think we're going to lose good people, not just but like to destitution, not to COVID-19? It's difficult to imagine what's going to happen everyone's job on a film set is about being in contact with other people. You can't really Mm -hmm. film without actors and without actors Mm -hmm. looking right on set. So there's costumes and props and lighting and all of that, that 80 member to 130 member crew sort of has to be there and working in close contact. So unless there's some sort of uh, vaccine or treatment for the disease. I'm really not sure what will happen. Will we lose good members? That depends on on how long it goes. I mean, with zero income, and if there are no packages provided to keep us going until it's done, I think that we may end up seeing a lot of very good, talented people turn to other careers if they can find them, where they can work from home or generate income of some kind, and who knows if they'll go back to the film industry. Uh, I I do think that we will see uh, a little bit more uh, stress on the sanitization and hygiene part of our world. For example, just before we were shut down, I was working on uh, both Orville and Them Covenant, uh, going back and forth between the two shows. And the craft service people, who usually put out an array of food and little packaged things and drinks for the crew for the long day, suddenly were not allowed to let anybody touch anything and had to wear gloves and masks and had to pick each item and hand it to you. I can see that kind of thing increasing and continuing. Because my heart goes out to everyone that's on across all industries that's been affected by the ongoing pandemic. And I I really do hope it's starts to get better quite soon because we really aren't coping very well with it. You know, when I made the decision to stay as a makeup artist, because that's where I started and I I loved it, one thing that I always thought is that the entertainment industry is always going to continue because even in times of trouble and downturn, people turn to movies and fantasy entertainment as a way of getting through it, getting through that rougher time. It never occurred to me that a virus would shop our industry down even more um, strictly than other industries. So it's quite a, a quite a challenge. If there, was, if there was ever a time people needed distraction and sort of entertainment, it's now. Well, they can watch old Buffy Returns. <laughs> that's that's exactly what I've been doing, <laughs> and I'm enjoying every second of it. Where can we find you if we want to? search you out possibly on the on the social media it's not in real life don't worry where can our listeners track you down 
<laughs> well, I, I've always been relatively public, so it's it's pretty easy to find me. I have a website. It has an email address, so people can always email me through my website, MacintoshMakeup.com. Thank you so much for coming along. And if like, is there is there anything you want to share with our listeners before like any kind of upcoming projects to look for, or just pearls of wisdom from an industry legend? I I don't know what to say except I would love to thank all of the fans who keep my name and reputation going out there. That's how we're remembered. That's how you know you've left a lasting impression on the world when it's time for you to leave it, that people are still talking about you and remembering your name. So I have to say thank you to all of you. We thank you. We're very welcome. We thank you very much for for the work. You've done some amazing things that have impacted my life and I know the life of all our listeners. So from all the fans, thank you in return. And if we can have you back in the future, I would absolutely love that. Certainly. If you want to talk again, I'm always available. I've been Tyke. This has been industry legend Tom McIntosh. And that has been the Nevers Podcast. You know, to all our, our listeners out there, keep safe, keep healthy, and remember that every time you bulk buy supplies you don't need, Joss Whedon pushes the release date of The Nevers back one week. So stop it. This episode of The Nevers Podcast was written, researched, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi. The intro and outro music was produced by Jilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. 